today, death is closely bound up with the things of life, more especially because it has become a thing so ordinary that it no longer causes us to suspend our usual activities as it used to do. We eat and drink beside the dead, we sleep amidst the dying, we laugh and sing in the company of corpses. Georges Duhamel, The New Book of Martyrs, Western Front, 1914 through 1916. Welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast episode six, Back to the Right Bank. Um, yeah, let me just start off by saying I'm really sorry for the uh, unintended silence uh, of the last few weeks. Um, just day-to-day life has gotten in the way and I'm uh, not particularly good at communicating uh, those things, so... It's me. It's nothing to do with you folks out there. You guys are great. Thanks for listening. Um, thanks for subscribing. Th- thanks for signing on to uh, the website, battleoverdonepodcast.com. Thanks for everything. Thank you very much. Um, a question has been put to me regarding the inhabitants of the little villages and hamlets of the battlefield. Um, like in what happened to them. So I've done a little bit of research here, and this is what I've got. The villages between Verdun and the front line of February 21st, 1916, found themselves inside a military zone and were evacuated by the French army. I have read that Lieutenant Colonel Emile Drian uh, of the Bois de Car fame on that first day of the battle. I read that he rented a house in the village of Samogno from an old lady. Although I can't remember the source right now. It may have been uh, Alistair Horn's The Price of Glory. I have also read of some diehard French citizens refusing to leave their homes until the very last minutes with artillery shells landing amongst the laundry. But this might be legend and nothing else. By February of 1916, the town of Verdun itself had very few civilians left in it. And these were evacuated once the barrage began on the 21st. There were no civilians hiding out in the root cellars during the battle or anything like that. You know, just sitting there waiting for the storm to pass. On both the German and French sides of the battlefield, evacuated civilians appear to as usual, have gotten the short end of the stick. The Germans simply shunted French civilians aside. On the French side, the army did assist in evacuating its people out of the areas of immediate danger, but once they were out of that zone, they were on their own. Georges Duhamel, in his memoir that I just quoted uh, at the beginning of the episode, wrote 
of seeing refugees from the Verdun area looking in vain for lodgings as Duhamel and his troops marched towards the front. When we last left off, we were at the end of May 1916, and the French and Germans had just battled on the left bank over Hill 304 and Le Mort Homme for over two months. Both sides slaughtered the other's men in not unprecedented numbers, but in pretty unprecedented horror, as this was almost exclusively a two-month-long artillery battle. After a brutally expensive effort in blood, the Germans took first Hill 304 and then Le Mort Homme in May. This finally cleared some of the nasty French artillery that had been pounding the Germans' hard-won gains on the right bank of the battlefield. During this time, the Germans squeezed in on the Verdun salient on both sides, with the Bois de Avocourt and the Bois de Malancourt taken at the far western edge, and with attacks pressing on the French-held village of Vaux and the surrounding moonscape of terrain on the right bank. The Germans were grinding forward, although at great cost. For General Pétain and his French Second Army on the other side, they had put up a hell of a fight on the left and right banks during March, April, and May, but in the end, Pétain found himself with his line of resistance breached badly when Hill 304 and Le Mort Homme fell to the hated Bosch. Pétain had done his duty to his utmost for those two hills, devastating the Germans with massive artillery and fighting for every foot of French soil. In April, he would be rewarded for these efforts with promotion to the command of Army Group Center, a regional command that had half its troops in the French Second Army at Verdun. Pétain would now oversee the battle at a much more strategic level. Huh? Bravo, mon général. Wait, no, not, not exactly. The French Second Army's performance during April and May showed that it was putting up a ferocious defense of Verdun. The seesaw battles for Hill 304 and Le Mort Homme, and the conduct of counterattacks like that of Lieutenant Colonel Marquer's 92nd Infantry Regiment in March had confirmed to General Joseph Joffre that Offensive à Outrance wasn't totally dead. Au contraire. See what I just did there? I just dropped French like I knew what I'm talking about. Like side perforated printer paper, Offensive à Outrance was not totally dead. It was an idea that just needed to be reintroduced. So, Joffre pushed Pétain to get more aggressive at Verdun with infantry attacks. Like Pétain's artillery turning the battlefield into the surface of the moon was, you know, some kind of passive act against the Germans. Pétain, probably with his arms folded across his chest and with his ice blue eyes glaring coldly, coolly informed Papa Joffre that he was the man on the ground and knew what needed to be done on the left and right banks of the Meuse. Period. 
End of story. Joff had had it with this guy. Betan was always begging for more men, more guns, and more materiel for Verdun. Didn't he know Joff was planning an offensive on the Somme for that summer? How could he execute that if Betan kept sucking his reserves away for the sideshow at Verdun? And now, now, just when things were starting to look okay at Verdun, Betan says he's not going to attack, he's going to stay on the defensive. What is a political general like Joffre to do? How about promote Pétain, get him the hell out of the driver's seat at Verdun, and get someone more like-minded to take over Second Army? And there it is. That's exactly what happened. The man Joffre promoted was the commander of the Third Corps, one General Robert Nivelle. Nivelle was just the kind of guy Joffre would have promoted. He was 58 in 1916, and he'd had a fast-track career since 1914, just like Betain, the guy he was replacing. Nivelle had commanded an artillery regiment at the Battle of the Marne, where, you know, credit given where credit's due, he had driven his guns through masses of fleeing Frenchmen in his sector to drive up and fire point-blank into the faces of General von Kluck's careening German First Army. By spring of 1916, he was promoted to command of the Second Army, defending Verdun. To Nivelle, the promotion was probably felt as very much deserved. In all honesty, we don't know precisely because he left no post-war memoirs. If you already know about General Nivelle and the French Army, you probably have an idea why. For those of you who don't yet, look up Chemin des Dames. Robert Nivelle was a self-made man who worshipped his creator. And kudos to you if you know where that quote comes from. Suave and dashing with the swagger of the cavalry he'd originally joined the army for, Nivelle for the times, also had the indispensable ability of being able to speak English fluently. His papa was French, and mum, she was English. This made him enormously useful in the era of the French and British working together on the Western Front. But coming back to suave and dashing, Nivelle was a charmer to generals and especially to the politicians which to them was especially awesome since guys like Joffre and Pétain either ignored them or were downright hostile to them. Funny, to his soldiers, Nivelle came off as stiff and unfriendly, which makes sense because to Nivelle, his soldiers were commodities to be expended at whatever the cost so long as the needed objectives were met. Yep. Nivelle was a believer in Elan, an offensive of danse, and he would especially believe it if Joffre was looking to promote someone who believed in the same philosophies he still did. Nivelle was as ambitious as he was self-loving, and this was the guy who now took over the day-to-day -day defense of the Battle of Verdun.
The first thing Nivelle and Joffre did was end Beton's Noria system of constant troop rotations through the Verdun abattoir. Now, French units would live the same life their German enemies did. Units would be relieved only when their commanders said they needed to be relieved. Poilus would now serve at Verdun pretty much until they died. Nivelle would hold Verdun whatever the cost. But he was different from Pétain in that the cost didn't concern him. For the French army, this shift from Pétain's paternal style back to the ruthless style of leadership of Joffre and Nivelle, coupled with the terrible losses it had already taken in the previous 20 months and the pounding it was now taking at Verdun, was the planted seed that would blossom into a crisis of morale. The logic of Tenid holding on, like we talked about last episode, was one already based on a grim determination and not a little desperation. Showing the Poilus and the Biffin time and again that they were treated like cattle to be killed for bankrupt theories of guts and glory started to push them towards a breaking point, the consequences of which in 1916 were as yet unforeseen. So, in May, the battles on the left bank, Hill 304 and Les Mordons, both of which fell to the Germans by the end of the month. On the right bank, the Germans of Crown Prince Willem's 5th Army were putting the squeeze on Fort Vaux, the ruins of Vaux village and the surrounding area. General Nivelle, in his new role, wanted an attack to retake Fort Douaumont. There were two local and relatively sound reasons for this. Number one, Fort Douaumont, now in German hands since the end of February, dominated the right bank of the Verdun battlefield for the Germans. While its gun turrets no longer worked, the mighty fortress now served as an excellent observation post that had eyes on all French movements. Poilu shifted in his shell hole somewhere on the right bank, and a forward observer in Douaumont would call down a firestorm of artillery on that poor guy. Douaumont, while under constant bombardment like the rest of the battlefield, was holding up well enough for the Germans and served as a rough forward field hospital and way station for troops going to nearby positions and to those returning from the same shell craters and corpse-filled ravines. Douaumont was a place where the German soldier could take his helmet off and sit for a little while in one of the dark and dank tunnels, away from the shrapnel and the shell fire, if not away from the pounding of it on the roof of the fort. These troops could be sent in any direction if any local emergencies flared up right from the fort, as these emergencies very often did flare up. second reason was this. On May 8th, the French saw that something had happened inside the fort. Something alarming to the Germans, and now was probably the time to try to retake the fort. What happened was this. 
It is believed that deep within the fort, a few soldiers lit a fire, maybe for coffee or to heat up rations. The fire got out of control and blew up cases of hand grenades nearby. The explosion of the hand grenades set off canisters of fuel for flamethrowers, which sent rivers of burning gasoline through the tunnels of the fort. One of these rivers from hell got into a storeroom full of 155 millimeter artillery shells and Duomont rocked with the resulting explosion. In the explosion and ensuing inferno, German troops inside were either blown to pieces or killed by the blast wave and then reduced to ashes. The entire staff of one regiment was killed to a man. The horror was compounded when Germans who managed to escape from the fire and get outside, fire blackened and unrecognizable, were thought to be African troops from the French colonies. Germans outside the fort thought it was being attacked yet again by the French and so machine gunned anyone who came outside, thinking these guys were Senegalese or Algerian tirailleurs. In this confusion, hundreds, hundreds of Germans were mowed down by their own brothers in arms. When the fires inside died down inside the fort, one hallway was so choked with bodies the Germans simply bricked up both ends and entombed the dead inside. No attempts were made at recognition or identification. The impromptu tomb is still there inside the fort to this day, exactly as it was left in 1916. The French saw the black smoke gushing out of the fort and knew something was up. In particular, General Nivelle's right-hand man General Charles Mangin surmised something had happened inside Duomont and he wanted to attack. Again. Mangin had already thrown one of his regiments at the fort in April, as soon as he'd arrived on the battlefield as part of Nivelle's Third Corps. The Germans had easily chopped up the attacking French and shot the survivors off the dome of the fort with little or no trouble. That was Charles Mangin's style. When he attacked, man, he attacked. Okay, let's talk about Charles Mangin. Now, this guy is, I, I feel, pretty complex. Much more so than you'd think at first sight and at first description. Charles Mangin was the kind of guy who was the human embodiment of barely contained violence. He was the guy you'd be nervous to be around at a party. His face and body probably seethed with the anticipation of being able to release and hit something or someone. Mongin was a born soldier and killer. Charles-Marie Emmanuel Mongin was born in 1866 in Saarburg, Lorraine. How about that for growing up nursing a grudge? The Germans occupied your hometown. He was a career military man with a distinguished career in France's colonies. Short and built like a brick outhouse and with a head of bristly black hair like a boar's head. 
Mongin had been part of the French expedition at Fashoda that had almost exploded into war with Britain in 1898. When the Great War began, Mongin was in command of the 5th Division d'Infanterie. His unit fought an important battle at Guise in August of 1914, a prelude to the Battle of the Marne just a few days later. He was a firm believer in the Offensive à Outrance school, and he won fame in 1915 when the 5th DI recaptured the town of Neuville-Saint-Vaast in a bloody struggle with the Germans. One of the features of the Neuville-Saint-Vaast battle was that both the Germans and Mongins Poilus were cut off from escaping by their enemy's artillery and were trapped in the ruins of the town, thus forcing a fight to the death that the French ultimately won. Mongin knew his men were trapped, but let it be, believing his men would fight it out better that way. By 1916, Mongin already had two nicknames that went with him everywhere, Les Bouchers and Les Mangeurs de Hommes. Les Bouchers meant the butcher, and Les Mangeurs de Hommes meant the eater of men. When Mongin attacked, his units typically suffered catastrophic casualties. He was known to say, whether you attack or defend, you, you lose a lot of men. But here's the complex, kind of complicated part. Mongin was a brutal bastard who pushed his troops relentlessly. If they failed him, though, he never blamed them. Mongin would scream and curse at his officers all day long, but never at the lower enlisted men in the trenches. The privates and sergeants failed because their craptastic officers led them to failure. But it was not the lowly private's fault, the dogged sergeant's fault, and it most certainly was not General Mongin's fault. Mongin was also physically brave. Almost unparalleled amongst World War I generals, Mongin regularly kept his command post close to the first and second trench lines in his sectors, well within artillery range of the Germans. He also regularly visited the front line itself and had a habit of daring other officers nearby to stick their heads over the trench parapets with him to see if the Germans would shoot. In battle, he stayed in the open and close to the fighting, almost daring fate to send a bullet or shell his way. This made him an absolute rarity amongst his contemporaries, many of whom weren't known as Chateau Generals for nothing. And furthermore, he wrote to his second wife almost daily. And by, by second wife, I mean his first wife had passed away. It, there wasn't anything weird going on there. A lot of the letters to his wife was him complaining to her like, yeah, I lost a thousand men for a hundred yards. What do these people want me to do? But he did write to her every day or nearly every day. So Mongin is not the totally thoughtless thug sending his men recklessly to the slaughter. It's a little bit more complex than that. Although his men frequently didn't share the 
enthusiasm and fighting spirit that he said and he believed they had. Les Monsieur de Holmes pushed for an attack on Fort Dumont, and Nivelle was all too ready to agree. With the constant fighting and preparations, the attack was set for May 22nd, two weeks after the fire inside Dumont. Mongin's 5th Division would attack Dumont itself, while another division would launch a supporting attack next to them. Even for Mongin, what happened next was an indisputable disaster. In between the catastrophe of May 8th and the 22nd, the Germans had quickly learned of the French plan to attack the fort yet again. They spent the two weeks between the 8th and the 22nd feverishly repairing the fort and strengthening its defenses as much as possible. Mongin had Dumont bombarded day in and out starting May 17th, removing any element of surprise as to where the French were going to attack. Granted, he hit the fort and its surrounding fields of shell holes and body parts with some 300 guns, including some new 370mm mortars that were the heaviest thing the French had to throw at the fort. The French Air Force now dominated the skies over Verdun. How, you ask? Um, I'll, I'll explain that next episode. Sorry. And so, they did great observation work for the artillery. Despite all the preparation, the attack kicked off on May 22nd with Mongin's battalions advancing and not having contact with their buddies to their left and their right. As soon as the French barrage ended, the Germans blasted the French jump-off trenches right away, knowing from the post-bombardment silence that the infantry attack was now coming. Mongin's poilus took a terrible beating as they left their trenches those that could. One battalion was pinned down and slaughtered in the hailstorm of German artillery and was unable to advance. Two battalions reached Dumont in a minutes-long rush over broken ground while shells tore gaps in their lines. One battalion took the roof and superstructure of Dumont and sent teams of poilus inside the fort. Another took its objective to the right of the fort a ruined German pillbox that was strewn with pieces of broken equipment and pieces of dead Germans. Both battalions lost two-thirds of their men, covering the few hundred yards from their trenches to the fort. Both quickly found themselves isolated and under attack from the hornet's nest that was Fort Dumont. Mongin stood on the top of Fort Souville, two or three miles away, and cheered at what he thought was the recapture of the fort. As usual, he stood exposed to German artillery as he watched, and the Germans did try to reach out and touch him. Several of his staff were badly wounded when a German shell landed directly on Fort Souville. Mongin remained standing through it all. He sent back word to Nivelle that Dumont was French again and Nivelle had it announced to the world. But at the fort itself, the French attack was coming apart. To the right, the battalion in the destroyed pillbox found itself under constant attack with no reinforcements. On top of the fort itself, the battalion there, what was left of it at this point, 
fought off suicidal German attacks that even featured the Germans shelling their own troops in a deadly accurate barrage. By May 23rd, things were getting really bad. The battalion to the right of the fort was decimated and practically surrounded. The battalion commander surrendered in the afternoon when his men made it known resistance was pointless now. On top of the fort, the remaining Poilus were blown to pieces or blown off by a German mine thrower brought up for this purpose. Whoever could scurried back to the original jump off trenches. By May 25th, Mongin's attack was over. Of the 12,000 men in his division on May 22nd, nearly a thousand of them lay dead on the approaches to Duomont, with another 4,500 wounded or missing. A carpet of horizon blue lay rotting in the late spring heat. Not one inch of ground had been gained by General Mongin. He was immediately relieved of his command by his new corps commander. Within a few days, however, Mongin would be promoted to a corps command himself. For all that went down, Mongin remained optimistic. Despite having failed to retake Duomont, his 5th Division had engaged and ensnarled three German divisions in the fight, keeping them from other areas of the battlefield. They did put up a hell of a fight. Even the German army noted in its reports that the French 5th Division was die beste französische Division. With the capture of Hill 304 and Les Mortons and the disastrous French repulse at Duomont, the Germans pushed now to break through and get to Verdun itself, finally. The German 5th Army needed to do something. On the right bank, the front line had shifted only a thousand meters in either direction in weeks, while the fighting raged as fierce as ever and the artillery kept on churning the ground. The fight on the left bank had been unimaginably expensive. Morale was dropping amongst the German troops, and it plummeted when the details of the explosion and fire at Duomont were learned. Despite being pleased his men had finally taken the two hills on the left bank, on the whole, the crown prince was losing faith with the whole offensive at Verdun. The results Germany needed weren't forthcoming. Until Pétain was replaced by Nivelle, the Germans kept asking, where are the French getting all of these troops? Little Willie wanted to call off the offensive, but he couldn't. On the right bank, his troops were now in forward exposed positions. Even just sitting there, one infantry division was losing 200 plus men a day to French artillery. General von Falkenhayn, for his part, had already lost interest in the whole Verdun thing. He'd already gone looking to see if Crown Prince Repressed would launch another attack preemptively at the Somme to which Rupresh had coolly basically said, um, no. Above all else, what really held von Falkenhayn's attention was his unlimited submarine warfare plan in the Atlantic Ocean, 
which was ticking off the rest of the known world with its increasing civilian deaths. Crown Prince's Chief of Staff, General Schmidt von Knobelsdorf, in a move calculated to forward his own grand ambitions, agreed with the Crown Prince that Verdun was getting too expensive and that the battle should be halted. He then turned around and convinced von Falkenhayn that the time to attack on the right bank again was now. Von Falkenhayn replied with the equivalent of, okay, that sounds good. Here's another division of infantry for you. The crown prince was royally pissed off. But since Peace of Schmidt von Knobelsdorf was his dad's man, it wouldn't be easy to get rid of him. Although he did put things in motion to start doing just that. So the new German push would be along the line running west to east of Diomont, Fleury, Fossouville, Fort Vaux. The attack was launched on June 1st in a landscape that resembled the surface of the moon. Germans fired their barrage at the French with increasingly worn out guns. Many of the shells fired would land on German bodies. Some of the guns were so worn out, they were exploding and murdering their equally worn out crews. And the French artillery, on top of all of this, was getting really good at counter-battery fire. However, the German barrage did its job. And the German infantry, ever as determined and dogged as their enemy, did their job. With the current pace of advance, the German generals had given themselves four days to get to Fort Vaux. By evening of June 1st, though, they had vaporized the French in their path and taken Thielmont Farm. The attacking German unit, 15th Corps, was instructed by its commander to assault Fort Vaux at 2 a.m. the next day, now just a few hours away. In the afternoon, General Nivelle ordered an immediate counterattack because, well, yeah, that's Nivelle. The French commander in the area, General Lebrun, the guy who just fired Mangin a week or so earlier, informed the good general he had nothing left to attack with. On June 2nd, Fort Vaux itself was surrounded and cut off from the French army. To the southwest of the fort at a position named Retranchement 1, a battered and decimated company of Poilus held off attacks from multiple sides for days while under German and French artillery fire with no water in the now blazing summer heat and plagued by hordes of flies that feasted on the dead all around them. But these Biffins were cut off from the rest of the world, unable to assist Fort Vaux in any way. Now the swarms of Germans clambered through the moat around Fort Vaux and teams of infantry and engineers tried to break inside. In the darkened tunnels and bowels of the fort was a jumble of battered Frenchmen. The fort's commander, one of those most unlikely of heroes, was putting them all together into what would be an epic defense. But that'll have to wait. That and the explanation of the air war that I owe you.
as well as grinding forward through the trenches of this story. Again, my uh, apologies for the delay in getting this episode out. Um, And I just want to say thank you again to everyone for listening, subscribing, and commenting. Thanks for taking the time and giving me a shot at telling a story that needs to be told. Comments and reviews can be posted on battleoverdonepodcast.com and on iTunes, as well as through the Facebook and on Stitcher. See you folks again soon. Take care.